I want to welcome everyone to this week's episode of SalesCast. Last week, we had the opportunity to speak to a group of CPAs, CFOs, and uh, just talk to them about how cost segregation and R&D would benefit their clients. So today, we are bringing you that special hour-and-a-half-long episode. We hope everyone enjoys. All right. As promised, it is 105 Eastern, and we're going to get started here. I uh, just want to say, uh, first off, uh, thank you for everybody that decided to take time out of your busy day to, to come join us here. Hopefully this call is going to be informative for you and be able to you know, answer any questions you might have. When I call, I'd like it to be as interactive as possible, understanding that it is a one-way dialogue, so it makes it a little bit more difficult. Due to the size of the group that we have, we can't unmute the lines. So if you have any questions, that you'd like me to make sure I address as I move forward, please just type them into the chat. Uh, there's both a question spot and a chat spot. Either one is fine. I personally like the chat feature. It's a little bit more interactive here on the uh, on the WebEx. So if there's a question specific that you have that you'd like me to address as I'm moving forward, just type it into the chat. That's the easiest and cleanest way uh, to do this. So uh, with that being said, now, one of the questions is if this event is going to be recorded. The answer is yes. This is going to be recorded for everybody that that is here. Glad you guys can hear me okay. And uh, so let's get going. Uh, I'm obviously for those of you, most of you kind of know who we are or have been introduced. I'm going to go through a little bit uh, of who we are and what we do, who I am, what I do, uh, and then we're going to really spend some time on two of the flagship tax services. Uh, that we bring to the table, which is the cost segregation and the research and development tax credit. I'm going to go through uh, basically a PowerPoint presentation on each. Uh, and again, that's probably the time where I, I expect to get some questions, and those are fine. Uh, if you have questions, again, um, please just type them into the chat. And if there's any time as we go forward that you don't hear me clearly, you know, we're using VoIP here, if there's a time where I'm breaking up, please let me know. I don't want to just keep rambling on for minutes and minutes if, if people are not hearing me. So if I start dropping or anything like that, if it's consistently dropping, please uh, just type in the chat, let me know, and I'll change, uh, I'll change the audio. So thank you very much for that. So let's get going here. So obviously, you know, my name is Jeremy Harrison. For those that, that don't know me, uh, I work for, for a company here called Growth Management Group, and, and we really uh, – are kind of a, basically a tax solutions provider. We're not a CPA firm. We're an outsourced engineering firm um, that works basically hand-in-hand -hand with CPAs, CFOs, business owners, financial advisors across the nation on procuring specialized tax incentives. One of the things that, that we find, found out, and it's kind of our niche here, is once you get outside of kind of the big four, big five accounting firms, there are a whole lot of clients uh, that, are, uh, that are eligible for specialized tax incentives and may or may not be receiving them. They might not know about them. They might know a little bit about them. But outside of the big four, big five, uh, we found a huge niche. And, and I'm assuming almost everybody that's on the line with me here would fall into that category. There are, I was just on the phone yesterday with a CPA in Virginia and he basically was saying, echoing the same sentiment, saying, you know, there are a ton of firms out here and a ton of clients, and I don't know hardly anybody that's taking advantage of, for example, the R&D tax credit. 
because they had a lot, uh, a lot of information, a lot of uh, government programs and projects that are going on, and a lot of tech going on out there. And he said he doesn't, he hasn't heard of anybody that's taking really full advantage of the R&D credit outside of the real big firms. And that's something that we hear time and time again. And, and I hope that part of, of this call, the education and, and, and just some of the information that we're providing, I hope that makes the CPAs and CFOs on this line, on this call, a little bit more comfortable and confident to at least move forward and seeing if there is opportunity both for you and or your clients. If you don't recommend it to your clients, if you're a CPA on this line and, and you're not bringing these programs to the table, let it be known that there are firms, other CPA firms or other uh, direct engineering firms like ourselves that are calling on your clients. And if they're going to bring it to the table, you want to be there first. You, you, obviously, we know that CPAs income is made from uh, billable hours and, and special projects that they are working on for their clients, you can't afford to lose clients. You really can't. It takes a lot of energy and time to get a client and then a lot of energy and time to keep a client. You can't afford to lose one, and we don't want you to lose a client over not bringing these incentives, these credits, these programs, at least to the attention of your business owners in your portfolio. So that's who GMG is. Uh, about me, so so there's me right there. Uh, I'm a I'm the national director here. My background is in banking. I was a wealth manager with a, a pretty large bank for a while before coming on over here. The growth management group. Finance is my background. Uh, so I came over in 2007. So that's uh, seven years or so, six seven years. I've been really focusing on. I'm building this company through providing these tax incentives, cost ag R&D, and some other ones that we also provide. If you ever want to check us out online, you're welcome to. Today, again, we're going to focus on cost ag and R&D. Uh, I'm a national speaker. Uh, you know, that's with the power of the Internet and the power of tools like this WebEx, I can be a national speaker that never leaves my desk. Um, but I'm actually, I actually do travel. Uh, usually once every other month or so I'm traveling and, and doing some presentations and things of that nature. Uh, a lot of it's educational. You know, we, we realize that education is the key and knowledge is power. And when you're dealing with tax and things of that nature, if you don't have the education or the knowledge, you're probably not going to move forward with something in this complicated realm. So we understand that. And uh, my job when I go out is that I'm just informing. I'm not trying to close business, just like on this call here. I'm not trying to close business. I'm trying to educate and inform, and I understand that, that if people feel comfortable with both me and our company, but as well as with the programs, then they're very likely to want to move forward. Uh, cost second R&D has been my focus uh, since 2007, as I mentioned. When I started way back in 07, it was pretty simple. We, we had these programs that we had just kind of heard of, and we're starting a company surrounding those programs. And when I started, it was essentially, I got a phone, I got a phone book, uh, I got to find some clients here. Uh, that's where my education came from, was just essentially cold calling clients saying, there are some programs that are available to you. I'd like to talk with you more about them. And that's how I got started. And um, thank God I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> uh, to be frank, anybody that's done cold calling as part of their life knows that it's, it's not the funnest thing. 
but it's necessary when you're building a, a new business, right? And, and that's how I kind of got started. And I'm also an executive coach and trainer. There's a, a lot of, of executives across the country that, that have that hired me, hired us, uh, to do some training and coaching for them on a lot of different levels. Um, and that's something I, I really get, take a lot of pride in. It's probably my favorite thing to do, quite frankly, uh, it is you know, roll up my sleeves talking to executives and talk about how we can grow their business and how we can face the challenges that they're facing and, and overcome them. Uh, that's Like I said, I think that's my, uh, my favorite part of what I do. So let's bring that to the uh, flagship services here. Now, for, for Growth Management Group, we're working on, uh, like I mentioned, cost segregation, R&D tax credit, and we also uh, work on personal and real property tax mitigation. We also have hiring incentives that we work on, the WOTC program, Energy EPAC 179B, IC DISC. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a litany of, of sub-programs, I guess I would call them, Tier 2 services. But the real fruit, the, I guess the real bang for the client's buck is generally in the top two programs listed here, cost segregation and R&D tax credit. And now on this call, I'm aware that there are going to be uh, some people that have a very detailed knowledge base of both of these programs, and this might seem very redundant. Uh, I just said, you know, bear with me. This is uh, we have a whole uh, a wide range audience here, and we want to make sure that we're going through the basics here. Uh, and maybe it's just a refresher. Maybe it's something you're hearing it from a little bit different perspective, and it'll be valuable. But I understand here that. Um, some of the information that I'm going to be going over is information that you're familiar with. Uh, so just you know, be, be patient as I go through it. And if there are specific questions along those lines, uh, please uh, put them in the chat box, and, and I'd love to answer those specific questions. Like I said, for those of you that are just logging on, if there are any questions as we move forward here, uh, please type them into the chat box. There's a question box in the chat box. I prefer the chat box, and I'll get to it. So let's move forward. Uh, we're going to start with cost seg, and uh, we'll go through this PowerPoint here. Again, uh, I'm, I'm expecting questions as I move forward, and I hope there will be. If there's not, I understand. It just means I'm doing a very thorough job. But if you have some specific questions, even if it's about a particular client and their qualification or a dollar amount, how much could this hypothetical situation qualify for, I'd love to answer those questions. So let's start, kind of dive into cost seg here. Engineering-based cost seg, and, and for those of you that, that understand the world of cost segregation, it is a gray world. It's not black and white. It is a lot of interpretation based upon the components that are put within a structure. Uh, what is a five-year item? What is a seven-year? What is a 15-year? There is case law to help guide us. There are some basic parameters. There's an audit and techniques guideline. But there is still a lot of gray area when you're breaking down a building. And because of that, you have to be very careful that you're, uh, in, that you're enlisting a firm that is going to do a thorough job and, and not do a lot of guessing, quite frankly. Uh, I've I worked personally with a lot of different engineers. You know, in the past, we've subbed some projects out to some engineers. Uh, and, and I've seen the different types of interpretation that's out there. And it's a little, a little scary uh, sometimes where 
you'll have people putting uh, assets into a five-year bucket that has no business being in a five-year bucket. Uh, it's ripe for audit when you do things that of, of that nature. And what you're going to find with us is we're very thorough. Uh, we're very aggressive as well. We can be aggressive because we're so thorough. We can go after every component that, that should be gone after, but we're not going to make anything up, and we're not going to stretch uh, and, and try to get something that is a little bit questionable. Because we provide audit defense, where if the client is ever audited because of our work, if, if our report is audited, we have to defend that. Uh, per our contract with clients, and we have to defend it at no additional charge. So when we get called in, if we get called in, uh, we're going to be working for free. So we better make sure that we're doing things right from the get-go. And for me, I manage this department. I manage the engineers. And because of that, um, I want to make sure that they do a great job up front because I really, quite frankly, don't want to have to deal with a huge audit headache a year from now or five years from now, what have you. I want to make sure we're doing it right from the get-go, and we shouldn't really have any issues. And make this full screen here. It might be a little bit easier for everybody to see. So, engineering-based cost tag. And again, some of this is going to be very redundant and basic, but that's okay. We'll just go with it. Uh, what is cost segregation? Obviously, it's an in-depth analysis of, of specialized the, the specialized incentives where we're breaking down the components. Uh, of, of a structure, basically breaking down every single potential component of a structure and reallocating or properly allocating the, those assets into proper asset lives. Traditionally, buildings of a commercial variety are placed into 39-year straight line convention. That's just typically what a standard CPA would do. What we're going to do is look at that building and say, okay, there's a lot of components within this building that, that do not last 39 years and shouldn't be classified, especially as it pertains to a lot of the case law and even Supreme Court case law that has been passed. A lot of these items can be classified into shorter assets and depreciated more quickly. Who qualifies? Obviously, commercial buildings. That's it's a pretty broad category. Commercial buildings are what qualify. As a company, we generally look at things over five buildings over 500,000 just because of the fees that we have to charge to put a great report together. We want to make sure that there's a value for the client. And if we're doing a building that is two, $300,000 and the benefit we get them is just not enough to warrant our fees, that's, that's part of the reason we kind of put these minimums. It's really to protect the client so they're not paying us uh, for a very small net benefit after our fees, and therefore they won't be very happy with the end result. How much do clients get? They're generally going to get uh, about 75000 This is a, a completely rough number because it really varies based upon the structure. If you have a wide-open warehouse building versus a high-end medical facility, you're going to get two very different types of buildings with two very different types of interior components. And therefore, the dollar amount of savings and benefit is going to vary. But this is just an average uh, number. So when, when you're thinking of things in the back of your mind, when you're, you're trying to think, hey, how much did this client qualify for? If they have a million-dollar office building, I think they're going to get about $75,000 in tax benefit. Just a, a basically just kind of a quick way 
rule of thumb type. So I already went through what the definition of cost segregation is. Again, we are putting uh, assets that were classified in 39 year or 27 and a half if it's like an apartment complex. Those would be a residential, residential commercial, so they're going to be 27 and a half. And we're going to depreciate those uh, lives and reclassify them into 5, 7, or 15 year. Now, we are not reclassifying the entire building, only the components that qualify. In a traditional building, what, what engineering-based cost segregation firms are able to get is about 20 to 35 percent of the overall, excuse me, of the overall building. So if you have a million-dollar building, then we should hypothetically be able to, to reclassify 20 to 35 percent, 200 to $350,000 worth of components that we're able to accelerate. 20 to 35 percent is traditional for an engineering-based firm. What are the items that are typically reclassified? Well, this is just an example of some. Obviously, site improvements is something that is really low-hanging fruit. When, when a client is working on exterior improvement, landscaping, parking lots, et cetera, most of those components should be placed into a 15-year convention. So uh, that's one of the, the accelerated methods is 15-year. So site improvements is one of the first things that we're going to look at. Are there site improvements? Were they properly classified? Uh, fixtures, wiring. Wiring is one of the biggest because unless you are some type of engineer, you're not going to know how to allocate the wiring into a report. So we, as a firm, uh, generally find a lot of fruit there because that's something we know how to do. And traditionally, a client would not have already classified the wiring into an accelerated bucket. And again, not all wiring qualifies. There are different types of parameters and different types of uses that cause certain wiring to qualify and some not to. Uh, specialized plumbing, flooring, I'm not going to necessarily read everything off. You can kind of see this from your screen. These are items that are typically found through our analysis, our cost segregation report. All right, cabinetry is, is an obvious one, furnishing, shelving, wall coverings, uh, outlets. Uh, you know, when you really think about it, you think of the guts of the building, and the general rule of thumb is if it's removable, it, it should be able to be accelerated. And now removable is, is a, another gray area, obviously. But if you just think of something that's able to be removed from that structure, there's a good chance that that component can be reclassified. Removable equals reclassified. There you go, I just thought of that. This whole thing stemmed from a landmark case, Supreme Court case back in 1997. Uh, it created the legal basis for what's real and what's personal property. Because what we're doing in a cost seg, when we're moving it from a 39-year bucket into a shorter bucket, is we're moving it from real to personal. Uh, we're moving it to personal property and uh, that's basically all based upon this landmark case. As I said earlier, that, that clarified kind of the structural versus non-structural components, or like I mentioned just a minute ago, removable. If it's not part of the structure, it can be removed and therefore it is likely to be able to be reclassified. For example, wiring. You, you can remove wiring. You can't remove 
in theory, the concrete foundation. Uh, that's not something that's something that stays with the building, and that's something that will not be able to be accelerated. But if it's something that can be removed, and again, it's a gray area, and there's a lot of legal things that have been going on back and forth because you know, as with anything, people like to try to push the envelope when it comes to saving money on their taxes, and they might try to do things that are a little too aggressive. And because of that, they might take some things that are pretty much structural components and say, you know what, I could remove that. Uh, it, it just it gets to the point where you don't want to go to that level, and at least us as a firm, we don't want to go to that level where the pillars in the middle of an office building, we can say, well, we could remove those pillars if we really wanted to. Um, so let's reclassify that. No, it's just that's not the spirit of cost segregation, and that's not what we are all about as a firm. Obviously, this uh, landmark case opened the door for new case law, and new case law is continuing to be written because of what I've been saying is that there are, this is a gray area, and if something qualifies, it might have to go to a case law, it might have to go to the courts to identify if this is a qualifiable item, and if so, they're going to write the case law, and now other similar uh, companies with, with buildings that have those components within it are going to be able to take that same accelerated depreciation based upon now new case law. And when we write our, our reports, our final reports that we give to both a copy to the CPA and to the client, we include applicable case law uh, for in each of our reports. So they're going to see, and here's some, not just the Hospital Corp of America uh, landmark case, but some of the sub-cases that have since happened. We're going to put some of the a synopsis into the report just to show you that our findings are based upon case law, not based upon uh, just what we feel should should work. Right on the IRS website, I, I take clients there all the time, NCPAs, irs.gov. It talks about the cost segregation approaches and, and basically outlines through the audit techniques guide uh, how a an auditor would audit a cost segregation study or an accelerated depreciation study and it breaks it down it talks about the types of acceptable approaches now let it be known all of these approaches are, are deemed acceptable even if you're just doing some some basic sampling uh, or some rule of thumb hey uh, the rule of thumb is you know, carpet carpet qualifies and it's a seven-year item and there's about X amount of square feet of carpet. Um, we're not even going to do measurements. We're just going to, to kind of just put it out there. You know, there are some rule of thumbs. And again, it's okay and it's an acceptable method. At the same time, you get to the point where things start to get a little murky and you might not want to be too... It's kind of like mileage. Uh, I like to say it's kind of like mileage, where if, you, if you're a CPA in the line, you know what I'm talking about when you're talking about deducting your miles. You know, you, you might say, yeah, I just I drove 15,000 miles for the year. You know, give me, a, give me my tax deduction. Well, that's fine, and you can get that. Um, with cost segregation, it's like saying, hey, you, you have to not just show that you drove 15,000 miles, you have to have, them, have it certified by a mechanic showing that uh, this is exactly the wear and tear that happened. 
Uh, you're going to have to write a technical report uh, to, sh to, to verify. You're going to have to tell me where you went for those 15,000 miles. That's kind of the difference in what we're looking to do and what an engineering approach, how it differs from a rule of thumb approach. So the rule of thumb says I drove about 15,000 miles, get me a deduction. The detail engineering approach says I drove 15,246 miles, and here's my breakout of every single time I, I got in my car. Here's my receipts. Here's my mechanic certifying that all of that happened. Uh, and now if the IRS ever wants to question me on miles, there's not going to be a question because I have all of the supporting documentation to prove it. That's very similar to what we're talking about with a cost setting, an engineering approach versus a rule of thumb approach. Now, mileage is a very small deduction. It's very minor, but cost seg, when, you're, when we're talking about a two, five, 10, $20 million building, and we're accelerating depreciation on 30% of it, and now, now we're talking about a seven-figure potential tax benefit, you kind of want to make sure that you're doing that, that detailed methodology as opposed to saying, yeah, it's a, I know the IRS has given me a seven-figure benefit. I'm sure they're not going to ask any questions as to, uh, to validate that. Well, obviously, the, the bigger the building, the larger the benefit, the more you're opening yourself up for potential review by the examiner. And, you know, we like to, this is kind of what we, we tell people, hey, we are the detailed engineering approach. We are that certified mechanic in that example where we're going to be putting it, put everything together. So if the IRS ever asks any questions, you're covered. And now you can validate the fact that you just got a seven-figure tax benefit from the IRS. All right. I'm going to minimize the screen a little bit just to see if there's any questions coming in. All right. No questions as of yet. Again, if you have any questions, please do not hesitate. So what are the benefits to the, to the owners when we're, we're talking about a cost segregation study? And this is probably the question I get most. I'm going to get this depreciation anyway is what I, I've been told. So why would I pay you to get depreciation that I'm already going to get? I don't, I don't need you. I'm going to get this depreciation over 39 years. Well, there is some truth to that. And, and I always let a client know, yeah, you will get this depreciation sometime, one thirty-ninth of it over the next 39 years. I don't know what your tax situation is going to look like in 39 years. Most likely, you own a building now. You're probably in your peak taxation years currently, and this is probably the ideal time for you to have tax deduction or, re or reduction strategies implemented. You might not need a, a tax strategy uh, th to this level in 39 years. There's also this thing called time value of money, and I think everybody is very familiar with how prices rise. Uh, and, and I think we know that that's not slowing down. What your dollar is buying you today versus what your dollar is buying you in 39 years is quite a different story. To validate that, just look at what your dollar bought 39 years ago versus what it buys you today. Uh, today, it doesn't buy you anything. <laughs> One dollar doesn't buy you anything. Uh, 39 years ago, it did. And, and so the whole purpose of a cost segregation study is being able to get that depreciation more quickly so you're saving tax dollars in today's money. 
knowing that in the future you're going to have less of a tax benefit on that because you've taken the tax benefit, but you've taken it in today's dollars. And today's dollars are a lot more valuable than 39 years from now, their dollars, right? So the benefit, obviously, we're increasing cash flow because you're increasing, increasing the depreciation expense. Now, unlike the R&D, COSTEG is not a tax credit. It is simply a, an increase of something you're already doing on your books. You have an expense side of your ledger, and we're increasing that. You have a line called depreciation expense. We are increasing that line. The higher your expenses are, the more, uh, the more you're going to be able to offset your income. Therefore, you're going to have less of a tax burden. So you're saving tax dollars by increasing your expense. Saving the tax dollars is obviously uh, an increase to cash flow. One of the largest expenses, expenses and, and for many clients, the largest expense they have is taxes. And if we're able to lower that, if we're able to lower that burden on the tax side, we're going to be able to increase uh, tax, increase the cash flow by minimizing the tax burden. I want to spend a little bit of time here on the catch-up benefit. This is, I wrote an article on this that is on our website for those of you that would love to, love to read what I talk about, <laughs> uh, the catch-up benefit. And, and the article is titled, uh, The Number One Lie of, of, About Cost Segregation, I believe that's. And the number one lie, and I've heard this uh, from many CPAs. I'm sure not the CPAs that are on this call, but I've heard this. You can only do cost segregation on new properties. Well, that's a lie, but I've heard that time and time again. In fact, I've been to CPA seminars where I've been in the audience, and they were the, the speaker that was training CPAs was saying the same thing. Cost segregation is a great strategy if you have a brand-new building, and that's the only time it's a great strategy. You can't do it any other time. Well, that's simply not true, and for a firm like ours, we do the majority of our studies on older properties or properties that have been owned for, for a period of time that are not under new ownership or new construction. The reason why is the power of the catch-up benefit. The IRS has something called a 3115 form. It's part of the 481 adjustment. That 3115 form is uh, the change in accounting method for you CPAs, and you already know this. What you're doing with a cost bag is you're saying when you do a study on an older building, say a building seven years old, or the, the current ownership has had it for seven years, and now we're doing a study. What we need to do is change the accounting method for depreciation. You've been depreciating it a certain way. Now we're going to make an adjustment. Because we're making this adjustment, the IRS allows for a catch-up benefit. What does that mean? Well, over the last seven years, you've been depreciating this building 139. A lot of these components are five- and seven- and 15-year components that we're going to prove by way of our study. Well, what, what are we able to do now that I'm doing this study seven years later today? What am I doing with all those items that were put in 5, 7, and 15 year? Well, the IRS allows you to go back and basically catch up all of the missed accelerated depreciation of those components into the current year, the year that you're doing the cost segregation study. So I'm doing a study today, for example, $5 million building, what have you, and it was all put in straight line five years ago, and now it's been put in front of me to produce a cost segregation study. We identify that, say, 25%, whatever, I'm not going to get to specific numbers here, 25% of that 
of that building should have been accelerated, and let's just put it all in five-year, hypothetically. Well, it's now five years later. So we find that 25% of that, that building should have been accelerated to five years, and now it's five years later. So the IRS allows them to make a one-time adjustment where we are going to be able to take that $1.25 million, which is 25%, and we're going to be able to write that off immediately in the current year by way of this study. We're going to fill out uh, the client CPA is going to fill out a 3115 form, and they're going to catch up all of the misaccelerated depreciation, all of those five-year components, and now look what we just did for this client. In theory, we just got them a $1.25 million expense in the current year by doing a cost segregation study, which cost the client, you know, between maybe – 10 to 15 grand, they just got a $1.25 million immediate expense on their taxes. That's very powerful. That's why most of our studies are done as this, as a catch-up benefit on a, an older property. Now, we do plenty of studies on brand-new facilities or the, the current ownership just got the building and they want to do a cost thing. Well, of course. It's obviously great to do it right when you get the building or, or right when you build the building. But what we found is so many people that never did a cost tag and still have a property and have a tax liability have no idea they can do a cost tag retroactively. Hopefully those that are on this call uh, understand that in full. All right. And obviously, anytime you're increasing cash flow, it can free up money for investments. You know, people that own commercial property generally are investors. And the more money that they're able to have at their disposal, the more they're able to do things with that money and make more money. And that's why this is such a powerful strategy. Here's some frequently asked questions that we get. Uh, why has, you know, this is a client type question. Why hasn't my CPA already done this? You know, we, we understand these, and I know there's a lot of CPAs and CFOs on this call you know, you guys are not cost segregation engineers. You're not paid to be cost segregation engineers. You're paid to do your specific role. Well, we are paid to do our specific role. And when a client talks, asks us that question, that's exactly how I explain it to them. They are, they are your accountant or CFO, whatever. Their job is to look after a certain part of your taxation, do your overall books. But there are specialized incentives out there that they're not equipped or educated to perform. It's very, very uh, similar to, in the medical profession, the generalist versus the uh, specialized practitioner where you, know, you have your family doctor, that's you, your, the CPA. The family doctor is there to kind of make sure everything's going okay and do you have your annual physical. But if the family doctor notice, notices uh, something wrong with the heart or the brain or something going on and, and, and there's cause for concern, they're going to refer it to somebody that that's all they do is deal with those issues. And that's us. It, you're going to refer a client to us and all we deal with are these issues. We're not a general CPA and we're not a CPA at all. We are a specialist that just focuses on a couple of these items in a way that a general CPA could never focus on. That's why we can do it so well. I already asked the question, answered this question, but this is a really good question, I think, even for the CPAs on the board, because I do get this. 
uh, CPAs ask me, well, I, this client is not going to want to have to amend their tax returns to utilize this benefit. As I just mentioned, we hardly ever see a client amend tax returns to get the benefit. They can. They don't have to. They can perform the 3115, and that's catching up the benefit into the current year, no amending, no mess, no worry about what's, you know, is the IRS going to look at my amended return and is that going to open up a whole another can of worms? You don't have to amend. Now, when we start talking about the R&D tax credit, if you want to get a prior year benefit on a prior year tax return, absolutely you're going to have to amend. Will this study trigger an audit? Uh, very common question. CPA, CFOs, and business owners alike. Nobody seems to like to get audited. Uh, nobody likes to deal with the IRS. Uh, but what we're doing here, when, and, and this is what I do with a client, I just take them right to the irs.gov and show them, hey, this is an, essentially an IRS product or an IRS-approved product. The IRS even has pages on their website dedicated to this exact issue of cost segregation. The, the way that you avoid audit is by really doing things above board, but sometimes there's nothing you can do. An IRS examiner can do and, and examine whatever they want. If they are going to examine it, it's probably good that you hired a specialist to handle this area. That's a way to make sure that you're covered. So this study is not necessarily going to trigger any type of audit, but it is going to help you if you are audited. As I mentioned, uh, our, you know, that we include the audit defense uh, in, in obviously all of our reports. This is just, I don't want to go too much because this isn't really product related. This is more GMG and how we do things. Uh, you know, we have a, a full report that we put together, 45, it's usually about 55 or 60 pages total when all is said and done. We have the executive summary. We have the case law. Uh, we have obviously our audit defense in there. And basically, we're just kind of uh, breaking out all the assets. This is just, a, you know, obviously a, a small little screenshot but generally, depending on the complexity of the building, we're going to have, you know, two, three, up to 10 or 15 pages of, of new depreciation schedule of all of the components within the facility that we've broken out and properly reclassified. All right. Obviously, we include pictures. And again, all of these things are done. We put our reports together assuming there's going to be an IRS review. That, that's just, there usually is not. And in Seven years of doing this, I've gone through two, uh, and that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies and only two. But we put our reports together, understanding that it could happen. And we want to make sure that, that the IRS examiner understands that we've been to this facility, here's the pictures to prove it, uh, here's all of the breakouts, here's our methodology, et cetera. All of that is included in our report. Like I said, all the detailed breakouts by asset. Uh, here's a little bit of I'm skipping through some of these. And here's some case studies. Any of CPAs, this is kind of for you if you have, you know, hotels are great, grocery stores are great, manufacturing is great. Uh, but at the end of the day, anybody with a commercial building that pays taxes is, is a candidate. As long as they haven't had the building for over, you know, 10, 15 years and the building has a decent basis, you know, 500000 or more, probably worth a review. There's a couple more. Even this little convenience store. I mean, there's uh, this. This is an example that, that we like to, to, to show our, our sales team of hey, anybody is a potential candidate for cost segregation. 
these little convenience stores, these C stores, are all over the place. And this little one here was still was able to save $73,000 of taxes um, based on a cost segregation study in this little property. Um, you know, there's there's just it's just a very very powerful uh, program, and and that's why I guess that's why we do a lot of it. <laughs> um, all right. Any questions as it pertains uh, at this point to the to the product of cost segregation? Please type it into the chat box. Our process again. I don't want this really to be about GMG as much as it is about training on the product. So I'm just going to quickly go over this. You know, the way we do things is we survey, we do an introduction, and then we do a kickoff. All through this, all through each three of these phases. The client has not paid us a dime. Our job is to identify and help and consult clients. If we've identified something that makes sense, we are going to have the client and the CPA both sign off that this is a good value. Now, what we've had in the past, and this is why we don't do it this way, we've had a client say, oh, $100,000 in tax benefits, that sounds great. Sign me up. Uh, they sign up and, and we start moving forward. They pay us a little bit of a retainer and we, we schedule the flight out there. But guess what? There's some reasons here that the client isn't going to get that money. And those are reasons that the CPA knows about. And they could be many issues, many reasons why a, a particular client, maybe they're passive and they have passive, maybe they're getting ready to sell, maybe they have other, uh, they have lost carry forwards. There's all of these different uh, items. That could that could make our study kind of irrelevant and in some ways non-beneficial at all. That's why we now talk to the CPAs and the CFOs before we we get to that level. We want and somebody asked me to expand this screen, so I will do that. Uh, we want uh, full communication with the CPAs. We don't want to feel the CPA anything is behind your back at all. This is what we're proposing. And at the, when we talk, and I'm going to go through this a little bit. So initially, we're going to just survey the client. We have advisors, and some of you were invited to this call uh, by some of our, our field advisors and, and our, our high-level executives that, that kind of bring these products to the table. We, we're, the first thing we do is survey. We're, we're not looking to, uh, to get married here yet, right? We're just looking to, I, to see if we can help. So we're going to survey the client, ask some questions, and if there seems like there's potential and there's a willingness on both parties, we're going to move it to what we call an introduction call. That introduction call is with somebody at corporate, somebody like myself or my team, and we're going to talk even further now from a corporate perspective. Is there a benefit? If so, we need to collect some documentation. Now, for cost seg, and if this is not a new facility, I want to see the current depreciation schedule. Let me see what the client and the CPA have already done or if they've not done anything. If we feel after those uh, analysis, <laughs> that analysis, uh, that there's something available, then we're going to move to forward to a, what we call a kickoff call. Kickoff is essentially launching the product, uh, the project, excuse me, but the client still has not paid anything because we want to make sure all of our I's are dotted and T's crossed before the client ever has to write any type of check and before I have to I'll write a check to the airline to fly out there. On the kickoff call, the webinar like this, we're going to identify what we think the benefit is. At this point, 
in between intro and kickoff, one of the members of my team has reached out to the CPA and said, this is what we're looking at. We have a depreciation schedule. We think we have a benefit. Tell me a little bit more if, if you feel that this is truly a candidate. Is, is this person even paying taxes? They told us that they have been, but are they really, or are they operating out of uh, a lost carry for it, for example? Is this really going to be a benefit for them? Are they, is the building for sale? And then there's going to be some recapture issues, and there's, there's, there could be some reasons why it just does not make sense. And, and so I'm going to talk, or somebody in the member of my team is going to talk to you as the CPA, and just get your, get your thumbs up or thumbs down, or some CPAs are just neutral. They say, hey, it could be good, it could be bad, not my, not my issue. Uh, you're, you know, run, run, go forward and, and see what happens. Because we do have some CPAs that just don't want uh, to have that responsibility of signing off on this, and, and we understand that. So on that kickoff call, we're going to say, Mr. Client, I talked to your CPA. You're at a 32% tax bracket. This is what we've identified. This is what your, uh, your savings is estimated to be. This is what our fee to get that is estimated to be. Let's schedule the flight to come out and finalize our study. At this point, we're going to collect a retainer. Uh, as after everybody signed off and this looks good, uh, we collect between 35 and 50% at this point and book the flight. And within 15 to 20 days, uh, we're going to be done. We're going to have everything to you, the CPA, as well as to uh, the client. That's our process. Uh, this is a little bit of the detailed, uh, the detailed overview, which I don't need to go into. So that's cost segregation in a nutshell. Um, let's see if there's any questions. I have no questions. Again, if there's some questions in the future, and if after the call you think of some questions, you can email me, uh, and I'm going to put my email right on here. Now, obviously, I would ask you to first send your questions directly to the advisor that invited you to this call. Uh, but if you have any questions, you can email them right there. Uh, if you look in the chat box, it's gmg at gmgsavings.com. So that's cost segregation uh, in, in a kind of a quick nutshell. Let's move over to R&D and uh, go from there. All right. So we call the R&D credit the manufacturing incentive. The reason why is... <laughs> um, we used to call it the R&D tax credit, and the number one thing we would hear from clients is, I don't do any R&D. So they feel that they don't qualify for a credit called the R&D tax credit. Unfortunately, the R&D tax credit is very improperly named, uh, and we're trying to overcome that with every conversation we have with clients. Um, our review, we're essentially analyzing a, a client's payroll and operation to identify if they qualify for these uh, incentives. And, and we're going to go through a little, a little bit more in detail. Companies that qualify generally have a payroll, and, and, and think of, uh, understand, generally have a payroll over 500000 Traditionally, we look at companies with a total payroll, not an R&D payroll. We're, we're talking about total, not R&D. A total payroll of over a million is our target. And obviously, the reason why comes down to the ROI and the fees that they have to pay us versus the work involved. We want it to be a win-win for everybody. But there are times when a small payroll still is a very large benefit. Those would be your, your high-tech 
your software development where they might only have four employees, but all of their activities qualify and they're all making 100 grand a year W-2. Well, now that's somebody that we're going to want to talk to. So use the 500,000, but don't, uh, don't abuse it. <laughs> don't, don't think that it has to be that under all circumstances. The average credit on the R&D side, again, this is just an estimate, uh, is twenty dollars to $40,000 annually for every million dollars of total company payroll. So if you have a client in the manufacturing sector and they have a million dollars total in their company payroll, they're probably going to walk away with twenty dollars to $40,000 for each year. Now we can, as you know, and we're going to go through this, we can go back uh, three tax years. Let's Let's rewind a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, what this is called is the R&D credit section 41 of the Internal Revenue Code. December of 2001 is when really new tax regulations enabled the smaller to mid-sized companies to be eligible. Now, the large companies, the, the, the Fortune 100 and even smaller than that, the GMs and the Fords and the Microsofts, they're high-paid CPA firms. They're Deloitte's and Grant Thornton's, we're going after the R&D credit for them. But it really, at, until after 2001, it really wasn't mainstreamed to the small and mid-sized companies. Well, that's what most, most companies in this country are small to mid-sized. And so new tax reg regulations enabled those companies to be eligible to take the R&D credit. They relaxed the documentation and discovery requirements, and that's really the key, is a, a small company doesn't really have the, the income to pay for all of what was needed to be able to capture that credit. They did, but at the end of the day, they would have been paying their accounting firm the entire amount of the credit. And, and so basically, documentation discovery was relaxed from the high level that you don't need to show as much documentation and discovery as formerly. Obviously, the goal of this credit is and was and always will be to keep innovation and creativity in the U.S. and encourage economic growth here. Uh, now, of course, we know that there's a lot of other decisions made politically that, that are not in keeping with this, but this particular credit is. This is a U.S.-based wage credit, and that you are getting a, essentially reimbursement of U.S. wage payroll back. Therefore, it is an encouragement to have more U.S.-based employees. Clients can now receive cash back and or credit um, for conducting the technical activities and meeting the new, uh, the, the new tax regulation requirements. Let's talk about R&D uh, from a picture standpoint. Traditional versus the current definition. Uh, so generally, when people think of the R&D, and when I talk to a client, they say, I don't do any R&D. It's because they think of R&D as scientists and lab coats tinkering with chemicals. They don't think of a job shop that has a couple of CNC machines and they get a, a, a pattern and they build a, a machine or a tool or what have you, they don't think of that as R&D because there, there's no lab coats and there's no chemicals and there's, there's no uh, testing and things of that nature. Well, uh, the good thing is the new definition, and this is very key for all of you that, that don't know this. This 
key. This is the R&D is a new or improved product, process, technique, formula, software, or invention. Now, when it says new, it doesn't mean necessarily new to the world. It means new to you. And of course, here we go with another gray area. At the same point, it's not about it being new to the world. You're building a widget, but the world already has widgets. So it's not that you are exempt from the credit because you're just building a widget and it's not new. Widgets have been around forever, right? No, it's new to you. You've never built a widget before. You've never gone through the process of figuring out how to build a, a widget, the testing as you built it, the tooling of the machine, the programming of, of the CNC and the computers to be able to spit out that widget. These are all things that are new to you and therefore qualify in part for the incentive. There's a couple other things that need to be taken place though. Not only does it have to be new to you or improved to you, it has to be technological in nature. If you're looking, uh, we get this a lot, if, if you're, um, uh, let's say a printer. Yeah. If you're a printer and you changed your ink from red to green because it, it's prettier, um, that's not a, a new process or a new technique. Uh, it is in theory, but it's not technological in nature. So keep that in the back of your mind. It needs to be technological in nature. It needs to have some, some science behind it. There has to be some testing and some reasoning behind it. It's not just aesthetically pleasing that, that causes this component to be improved. It has to eliminate uncertainty. Obviously, when we, we use the word of experimentation or testing, we're talking about how did you get to the end result? Obviously, if I'm up here in Michigan, a lot of job shops up here that are suppliers to, the, to GM and Ford and Chrysler, GM gives somebody, one of these job shops, a mold or a print or a plan, and they say, build this. That job shop has some things that they need to figure out how to build it. They, there's going to be some experimentation because what happens if there is some type of mistake or some type of tweaking that needs to be going on throughout the process? See, when I talk to these, these job shops, they say, I don't qualify for the R&D credit because I just get a print and build it. They don't understand that that's exactly why they qualify, because they are building something that is new to them, that is technological in nature, and they are going to have some uncertainty and experimentation as they move forward in trying to figure out how to build this thing. That is why their time, a portion of their time, qualifies for the R&D credit. And I think what I want people to take away from this training and this call is to not disqualify people for this incentive. Let us disqualify them. There is so much, and there's so much case law that continues to keep coming out as to things that now qualify that never used to. If there's a credit available and you have a taxpayer client or you're a CFO and you're paying a lot of taxes and you do anything like this, and why I say anything like this, um, here's our qualified activities. If you do anything like this, then you should look into this credit if you haven't. And if you have looked into this credit five years ago, there's so much that's changed in the last five years, you should look into it again. Here's our qualified activities checklist. Makes it very easy to see for clients. Do you do these types of activities or not? 
Manufacturing, that's very broad. Fabrication, that's pretty, pretty obvious. Engineering, one of the questions I ask when I talk to clients in the manufacturing sector and I feel that they might qualify, I ask how many degreed engineers do they have on staff? Because that'll tell me a lot of what they're really doing. If they have an engineer on staff or two or three or more, um, they are almost guaranteed to qualify for the R&D credit at some level, including civil engineering, which is something that you wouldn't think qualifies, but we have found millions of dollars for civil engineering firms across the country. Uh, these, again, qualified activities. Does your company do any of these things? New products, process, do you develop new concepts, new technologies? Do you do any design, any CAD work? Prototyping and modeling, those are things that are generally going, uh, that you're doing before you're building something, right? Testing, obviously, if you're going to be doing something, you're going to have to test, make sure it works. Uh, and also, there's a lot of people that do uh, some type of quality assurance. And, and there are portions of all of these things that are listed here that qualify for the R&D incentive. Are you integrating new machinery into an existing process? Talk about something that is common in the manufacturing sector is, hey, I got a new machine. The machine doesn't qualify for the R&D credit. There are other credits that that machine might qualify for. It doesn't qualify for the R&D. The R&D is a wage-based credit. However, who is programming that machine? Who is spending the time trying to figure out how the heck to get this machine to do what we want it to do? That time that that member of your company is spending trying to figure out what the heck this machine is supposed to do, that time is qualified for the R&D tax credit. You pay them, uh, you know, they're on a $60,000 a year salary or $80,000, whatever that is, a portion of that should be reimbursed because they are doing R&D activities by testing and trying to integrate that new machinery into the process. If a company does any internal software development or improvement, even if sometimes, even if it's not necessarily for for sale, uh, then there's potentially a benefit there. I have one member that just mentioned I am breaking up. Please, uh, if I just to make sure that it's not your connection, please let me know if, uh, how I'm sounding to everybody else. If a couple people could just uh, chime in on the chat and say if I'm sounding okay or not. Okay, thank you. Sounds like I'm doing all right. Um, and he's automating or streamlining internal processes, developing tools, molds, or dyes, and developing or applying for patents. These are all functions and, and, and activities that qualify for the R&D tax credit. And if you or your client are doing these activities, you should really look at having an R&D credit review. All right. So the benefits to owners, uh, obviously a significant credit slash cash back from, from three open years. So I haven't talked a lot about this, but the R&D credit, you, you are enabled to go back three tax years plus the current tax year. So for, for example, right now we are, people are, are just finishing, if they file an extension, they're going to be finishing up tax year 2012. 2012 is likely their open year. So 2012 is their current. They can go back three open. That's 11, 10, and 9. That's assuming in 09 they filed an extension as well, but because it's based on 09. However, 
hypothetically, if I am talking to a client today that files an extension, is filing October 15th, I'm looking at them and saying, we have 2012, 11, 10, and 9, essentially four years that we can go after incentives. Now, to go after those incentives, as I mentioned earlier, to get those and procure those incentives for prior years, you are going to have to amend tax return. That's, that's just how you get the, that's how you get a tax credit on a prior year is by amending and applying, putting that credit in there. Dollar for dollar, for dollar tax reduction on the current year. Uh, and according to the IRS, uh, we always like to get interest back, right? If you're getting a refund on a prior year, then they include a little bit of interest because they've been holding your money hostage, right? You should have gone after this credit. You didn't. Now you are, and you would get paid back with interest. It's always nice to get a little interest back from the IRS. And as a typical traditional tax credit, you can carry forward unutilized credits. Some of the frequently asked questions I get uh, per pertaining to the R&D credit, what type of background and expertise is necessary to really provide this service? And again, just like COSAG, R&D is a very technical credit. We have some CPAs that, that, that tinker a little bit. They, they do a little bit and they do a little estimating and say, yeah, your payroll is about X. I think you can, you can qualify for about this amount of, of, of credit. So let's just write that number down. Let's be very conservative in case the IRS asks any questions. That's not us. What we do is identify every single, basically, employee of that company or subcontractor, find out what they do, and see if they're going to potentially qualify, and then analyze their, their, uh, their W-2s or their 1099s. And, and we, of course, have some estimating uh, methodologies that the IRS allows for. But what we're really doing is breaking down this company's processes and techniques and the, the job functions of the employees to be able to spit out a very uh, accurate report. So to, if you're going to be doing this, uh, you're te you need to have a technical and a legal expertise because of all of the case law with R&D and because of the potential audit ramifications. If you don't have the technical ability to know how to get the credit, and the legal expertise to be able to defend that credit in case the IRS asks about it, you shouldn't touch it. A lot of CPAs across the country uh, outsource well to us or to other firms like ours uh, because of how specialized the R&D credit is and because they want to wash their hands a little bit on the audit side. Uh, CPAs are pretty smart cookies, and they want to make sure that they're not you know, risking too much. Now, any CPA, you know that if you're signing a tax return that has an R&D credit in it, uh, that you are still on some level liable for that. And so make sure you use a reputable, reputable firm. But please, I guess I, I urge you not to dismiss this credit because of the potential risks associated with audit and things of that nature. Audit is generally on the larger credit. And there's another thing which I have not mentioned. For the current year only studies, the IRS has come up with what's called the ASC method, Alternative Simplified Credit. It's a smaller credit and it has less documentation, less discovery. Therefore, it's a smaller credit and therefore it has less risk. 
we don't we have not seen a single ASC study been audited. They're just not audited. They're, they're, it's a simplified credit, and it's only for the current year. We're getting a smaller dollar amount, but the IRS is not as uh, it's not as strict, I guess, with those. So at least do the ASC if you don't want to. If you're a little nervous about amending and things of that nature, and don't completely disregard the credit. There are ways that we can do it in a way that is less invasive, and that still gets the client a little bit of a benefit. Like I said, if, if you're not going to bring this to your client, I guarantee an R&D credit firm is calling directly to your client, trying to sell them on the fact that their CPA should have brought this to the table. Here's a good question. Our clients have never documented the activities of the employees, so we can't get the credit. Actually, that's not true. Uh, what we do, and what a, a couple other firms like ours do, is a, is a pretty thorough interview process. Now, there's this balance here. We want to get very good information but we don't want to interrupt the operations of the company. We understand that, and so does the IRS. The IRS understands that a company is not in the business of getting tax credits. They're, they're creating widgets. And therefore, there is some estimating that is completely acceptable because of that, knowing that we can't talk and interview every single employee and ask what they do every day of every year and then spit that out in a 25,000-page report. That's just not viable. So they allow some estimating. What we're doing is interviewing some key personnel, generally the technical people, the supervisory people, the project manager people, and getting a good feel for the overall operations of the company and of the staff, and using that, comparing it to the W-2s and the 1099s, and coming up with numbers that are tied together in a way that allows the client to get a to get this tax credit. How long does it take the client to realize the benefits of the study? Uh, for three for the pre previous three open years, it takes one to four months after amending. All of you CPAs know that when the ball is in the IRS's court, you never know what's happening, and you never know when it's happening, and that's just the reality of the situation. So I do an R&D credit for for this hypothetical client that that filed an extension. I'm going to do 2012 right now, and let's say we use the ASC method for right now. Well, the client is going to see the benefit the day that they that you finalize the return, because the benefit is dollar 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 for dollar reduction on that tax return. So they're going to see the benefit immediately. However, we're also amending the last three years, nine, ten, and eleven. On those years, I can't really guarantee when the IRS is going to review it and cut you your check. We generally see one to four months, and that's pretty much all we can say because we just don't know. And there's other factors involved. Do you owe the IRS any money? Uh, there, there's some factors. We had a client a long time ago that complained a little bit about why they hadn't gotten their check, and we found out afterward, well, they owed the IRS a lot of money. Well, they never got the check. Obviously, the IRS took that money off uh, what was already owed them. That's something that's out of our control. We don't know if you owe the IRS money or not. And I answered this question just a minute ago. Uh, will this project disrupt the employees or the CPA's daily activities? And again, um, there's going to be a little disruption. That's just honest. Uh, but our project is designed to have minimal client and CPA time. That, that's, we have a process. It's buttoned down. We've been doing it for seven years. 
uh, or longer. And we understand what we need to do. When we walk into a project, we know what we need to do. Who do we target? And we have a, a, we have checklists built. What specific questions are we asking? For example, we walk into a job shop, and I know I keep using this example, but it is what it is. You walk into a job shop, and we, we've already done 100 and something projects for job shops. So we know what we're looking for. We know who we're looking for. We know what questions to ask. And we have a very good idea of what our end deliverable is going to look like because we've done so many similar. Again, that's another reason why us versus maybe another firm or a CPA firm on their own, it, we're, it might be a little bit better because of our experience in these different industries. So we're, we're not starting from scratch or recreating the wheel every time we have a new project. We know that an ABC company that builds widgets hey, that's just like XYZ company that builds widgets over in the other part of the town, almost the identical company. We know exactly what we need to do to get this credit. We need to, who we need to talk to, we, we're going to get this thing turned around in just a few weeks. And so that's the benefit of having a firm with a wide pull uh, that has a lot of experience doing this. This is a little savings estimate slide. Again, it's basically what this is talking about is our, our fee cap, because we do charge uh, we charge a project fee uh, or hourly rate, but it's a project fee not to exceed a percentage of the client's benefit. Because of Circular 230, this is, again, a little gray in how you can charge clients. We don't charge a contingency percentage. We used to before the, the laws were more strict. So what we charge is a project fee. And we tell the client up front, your project fee will not exceed 35% or whatever that rate is of your benefit, your net benefit. So that includes audit. Uh, and again, we can get burned because, for example, we get we get a client $100,000, we charge them 35, hypothetically. Charge them 35, and for whatever reason, uh, there's an audit review that needs to be done for this particular client. And that audit review costs us 50, 60 hours of our attorney's time. We just lost money on that project. Good reason why we want to put our studies uh, together in a manner where audit is a very small possibility. Hopefully the IRS examiner looks at it and says, great job, it's a very technical report, um, you guys are fine. We don't want a client to get audited because we know when that happens, our attorneys, which are not cheap, are, are, are going to charge us enough where our fees are really not going to help offset that. So but inevitably we charge approximately 35% because our fee is capped. So we can never charge the client more than 35000 in that example, even if we had to spend all that time, because in the contract that they signed, they signed that our fee would not exceed 35% of their net benefit. So that's how we, we charge a project fee uh, and not a contingency base, but the client is still protected by that cap. In this example here, it's basically on the bottom, you have payroll numbers. Uh, and, and then up here, the, the, the blues are basically a four-year credit. So in this example that I was using, uh, we, we think we're going to get a four-year credit for this company. If they had a million-dollar payroll, uh, let's use a bigger number. Let's say they have a $5 million payroll, um, then this blue here is their four-year credit, which, uh, you know, $250,000, $260,000 or so on a $5 million payroll, because remembering we we can use we can do four years. So 
four years times five million, that's $20 million worth of payroll that we're going after. You get a nice little benefit there. All right, stick with me, guys. Uh, kind of going to be landing the plane here pretty quickly. So uh, any questions, again, please, please have them out ready for me. Our final deliverable, similar to COSEC, it's a full 45-plus engineering report. We, we include the project flow and methodology of exact, what the client's projects were and, and how we identified those projects, uh, and then the methodology that we use. We use a project-by-project project approach. When we're talking to a client, we're identifying the projects that this company had worked on throughout the year and, and assigning payrolls to those projects and, of course, going after the credit after that. So it's a project-by-project project approach, which is the top approach, requested, required, whatever, not required, requested, suggested uh, by the IRS. Of course, we're going to include our case law and supporting verbiage because there's a very legal credit. <laughs> I think you can tell that from the amount of time I've spent on this. The uh, very legal credit. <laughs> Uh, a lot of attorneys are involved in, in this type of, of credit and because what happens is a client thinks they qualify in the spirit of, of the code and they, they try to get it and the IRS rejects it. And, and the client says, you know, that's baloney, this qualifies. And they're going to take it to the courts. And that happens very frequently. Your final deliverable, again, continued uh, qualified research expenditures, your QRE breakdown which is essentially year over year, how much did the client qualify for, what's their credit. Uh, we're going to provide the ASC breakdown if that's applicable. We, uh, we do help uh, prepare the 6765 uh, for, for you, Mr. CPA. So you can we can give you the numbers and you can put it together or we can put it together. It's just essentially a number on a form. Uh, and then we're going to provide a summary uh, of the wages. You know, Johnny Smith works made $140,000 and $32,400 was on R&D-related activities. Uh, that's what this uh, wage summary is. It's a breakdown of the employees and, and what qualifies uh, for the incentive. Again, a very thorough report, something that, of course, a CPA on their own wouldn't have time or expertise or knowledge or the desire to do. Here's a couple of case studies. and I did have a question asking about the, the net benefit. Uh, and another question talked, asked about are, are copies of this available to advisors uh, and th these presentations, all of you that are advisors that are on this call uh, know that these presentations are available in the app. So uh, you already have those available to you uh, right in your app. Um, defining the net benefit, let's get that before I get to the case studies. Because we talk about gross and net and we charge on the net. Basically, you have to pay taxes on your credits, right? Uh, so if you get a $100,000 tax credit uh, and you're paying 35% on that, you're actually getting a net of 65000 right? Well, it's that 65000 that we charge our fee on. So we would, in that example, we would charge 35, you know, a cap of 35% on the 65000 which is 22, 23 grand not on the 100. So we don't charge on your gross credit because we understand that credits are added back as income. So thank you for that. Uh, and I just want to make sure that, that you know that we're not looking 
if we charge on the gross, all of a sudden we're pretty much charging 50, 60% of the benefit. Good for us, bad for the client. Uh, so just UCFOs, CPAs, advisors, everybody on the line, these are just some people to, to have in mind. Injection molding, uh, job shops, you know, here's an adhesive manufacturer. Again, I, I, like to, I like to get you thinking outside of the box, maybe some clients that you didn't think would ever be a really an R&D type candidate. I want you to be able to see from here that they're very well maybe. Civil engineering firm, uh, this is their office. This isn't a big manufacturer. This is a civil engineer that spends all their time on the road. Uh, there's definitely benefit for civil engineers. It's a whole, a whole company worth of engineers, and they do a lot of QRE, qualified research expenditures. Big parts manufacturer. Uh, again, anybody that's manu a true manufacturer, they're making something, then, then we should be looking at it, as long as you know, they could use credits. And that's one thing I, I bring to the table with CPAs is, if, if you got five years of, of carry forward losses, I don't necessarily advocate that you have a client do an R&D study and now they have more losses. They paid fees, so good for me, like I mentioned. Uh, I made money, but they can't utilize these credits for 15 years. It probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, we're really looking for companies that are profitable and have been profitable over the last few years and have never taken advantage of this credit. That's who we want to look for. Here's another engineering and design firm, and then here's just another typical Michigan-based job shop. Small little company, does a couple of jobs for, uh, for GM, and able to get them a nice little benefit. Again, they never, I know these guys, that's one of my clients, uh, never would have thought, they had no idea that that little job shop would qualify for something called the R&D tax credit. But they do, and we've been doing their study for, uh, well, six years now. The process, this is the exact same process, essentially, um, as with the cost side, we're just, again, we don't charge. Survey, intro, kickoff, there's no charge. We don't charge until we actually are going after the incentive. And with the R&D, we don't charge until we've uh, finalized all the, all the numbers. We finalize the numbers and we send the client uh, the, the statement, the QRE summary, told them what we found, and then we begin the, the process of, of invoicing and, and all of that. So there's no, there's no charge for a client to find out if they qualify and for how much. We're ending here, uh, just on the last couple slides here. This is, this is the production process. Uh, essentially, when we're dealing with R&D, we're going to have to collect financials. That, that, there's no way for us to do a study without knowing uh, the financial position of the company. So we're going to collect some financials. We're going to identify who we need to interview uh, from the client side. Uh, and that's what, you know, it says here 10 to 15 hours. All of that is depending on the size of the company. But don't think that we have to be interviewing for 100 hours to be able to come up with a report. We have a very button-down process. We know what we want to ask ahead of time. We generally send out a questionnaire ahead of time. So the client, a lot of times, can just answer a lot of those questions. Then we get on the phone and just review and make sure that all those answers are correct. And we can knock things out very quickly. Again, the benefit of having done this for so long. Three to four weeks, client will have their credit calculations. And uh, basically, that's kind of our first deliverable. So we, we deliver in two phases. One is credit calcs. Where we're, here's your credit calcs. And now we're going to work on that, that technical report. So we, but we want you to be able to file. If, you have, if you're a client that wants to amend your tax return, 
here's your forms to amend. I'm working on your technical report behind the scenes, and that's going you know, to take a little bit longer for me to pretty this up and do a nice report, but here's your numbers if you want to go amend now. We put the technical report together, and like I said, it's uh, an older study uh, on prior years. They're going to receive a refund when, um, hopefully within the next one to four months. It shouldn't be any longer than that, but again, you never really truly know. All right, so what's, uh, if there are any questions, again, please keep them coming. Um, we've had a couple that came through, and, and again, I, I do want to, want to have everybody out by 2.30, so we've got about five minutes, and, and I'm just going to kind of summarize here. You know, we obviously appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule, again, to come join us, to come join me. I would obviously love to work with everybody here. This is, this is obviously a little bit for education, but also I would love to build a relationship. I'd love to work on a project with you uh, and, and go from there. You know, there's, there's no reason for me to hide behind that. You know, I, the people I educate, I'd also like to work with, right? And I'd love to work with you. you if you have some clients that either own commercial property or, or do some type of manufacturing on the R&D side, I did want to, you know, right here, these are some industries just to look at. I'll just kind of leave this up until we, until we close out. You know, if you, if you have clients or you are in any of these industries, it, might as well check it out. And check it out with somebody. We'd obviously love you to use us. Uh, but either way, if there's a credit available, the number one thing that we we're, we're, want you to focus on, CPAs, CFOs, advisors, is are, are you guys profitable? Are you writing a check to the IRS at the end of the year, or are you writing quarterly checks? Are there taxes being paid? And if so, then we really should find ways to reduce that. That's kind of what, what CPAs, that's kind of what your clients are asking you to do. It's great that you do their books. But if you're not reducing their taxable income, they can find another CPA. I know that's blunt, but you know what? That's that's just how it is. Uh, they want you to re they want you to keep their taxes low, uh, and and that is exactly what we at GMG are able to help you with in in a few areas. Again, we're not CPAs, we're not your competition. Uh, we are a resource that we'd love to to work with you on, and see if we can go after your clients help them uh, reduce their taxable income. Again, uh, GMG at GMG Savings. If there are any questions that come up, uh, somebody asked um, a question about software development, uh, if they qualify, pretty much. And again, there are specific niches within software development as this question is coming in. You know, if somebody is developing software, they have software programmers or engineers in-house that are there paying W-2, uh, then absolutely we should look at seeing if what they're developing qualifies. There is not a guarantee. There's a separate uh, software test that, that we do where there's multiple, basically multiple questions that we ask to really um, find out if a, if a software company does qualify because there's some extra qualifications and things that the IRS is looking for when it comes to software. So the number one thing that I would leave you with is if they develop software, they have software developers and coders and programmers in-house, then we should look at moving forward. Again, let's, 
let's get them, let's talk to them, let's identify it. And if it, in, in the end there's no benefit, we'll let them know, no harm, no foul, no fees were charged. Uh, but what we don't want to do is assume, well, I don't think this type of software qualifies, or let, so let's not even look at it. Let's always err in the side of let's, let's try to do it, let's see if there's anything there. And as I've said before, we are not going to expose your clients to any undue risk because we know that we're taking on that risk with them as, a, as it relates to the audit defense side of things. So we don't want them to, to get audited, and therefore we're not going to do anything that would cause them to be audited. Again, uh, if you have any questions, and, and please just kind of write this down or put it in your email or what have you, uh, this gmg at gmgsavings.com, that, that's my email. It's also checked um, by my assistant. And, you know, if there's something that just comes up, if you have a client or if, you have, if, if you're a CPA with a client, I, I'd really uh, suggest that you just talk to the advisor that invited you to this call and, and let him kind of run with it. Um, but if there's any, any specific questions that, that you'd like me to directly answer, I will. Uh, and and through, through email, that's generally the best way. So, again, I really appreciate uh, you guys. Again, it took an hour and a half out of your day just to hear me talk, and, and I really appreciate that. Uh, and, again, I hope it, it leads to something. But if not, uh, I hope you've got a little bit of education, feel a little bit wiser about cost-setting and R&D, and uh, can help you or your clients get these benefits. So with that being said, I'm going to sign off. Thank you, everybody. Uh, have a, a great day, great week, uh, weekend, and uh, enjoy the start of the NFL football season tonight. Take care, everybody.